transmission history of the English Bible, but this week uh, we're going to establish a foundation for that. Uh, talking about translation, process, how we got the canon as we know it, the 66 books. That way when we talk about Wycliffe and Tyndale next week, we're going to kind of understand the grueling process that they went through to get to that point and what they're actually doing. This is going to seem a lot like a lecture and not a sermon. So that's, for some people, this topic isn't very interesting. So I'm going to try to be a little interactive to kind of keep it going in our minds here. I'm going to start with a question, though. How many of us would have a copy of the Bible today if we had to hand write it? Understanding that for 13 to 1400 years, uh, it was all handwritten. And for 900 years, it was unsealed text, which means no spaces, all capital letters, and no punctuation. So before the printing press was invented, that's what they did. That's how they got a copy. And even after the printing press, there's still post-dated manuscripts of people that actually kept handwriting them after them just because they didn't have access to it or money to do so. So if you wanted a copy, you had to either borrow someone else's and handwrite it or go somewhere that has some and sit and handwrite it yourself. So when you think about that and consider it, how many of us would even have a complete New Testament, especially any of the Old Testament, like the prophets? We might have Psalms, but would we have Deuteronomy or Leviticus? I mean, the first nine chapters of First Chronicles, nine chapters of genealogy, it was a struggle for me and still is to read the nine chapters and stay focused, let alone uh, word for word, hand write it. These men that did this, this was before the era of electricity uh, or controlled temperatures in a room. So they did it exposed to the elements and oftentimes in candlelight. Uh, and they also faced persecution and death because if you had a copy, most periods of times it was illegal and uh, you faced imprisonment or death for doing that because you were opposing the government. These men were faithful and I believe led by the Holy Spirit, faithful to God's word and what it is. Nowadays, uh, if we want a Bible, we can go online, click a button and they hand deliver it to the door, uh, bound in leather, Jeremy knows, and we find them, whichever one we like, whether it looks good to us, whether we like the texture of the level, leather or the pages, we can pretty much pick whatever we want, anytime we want. I've got multiple copies at the house. Most of us do. And uh, this is the foundation of our faith now because it is what we find as authoritative to the individual and to the church. That is our authority. So it's not very uncommon for the outside world to attack it by atheists and any other similar belief and even professing Christians. Uh, if you've ever talked to a mystic, you will understand that. So what I'm going to do is starting off, I'm going to read a series of questions, or these are actually uh, complaints or arguments that I've heard from the outside world, whether at work or talking to an individual. 
their thoughts on scripture and how they would approach it. And just in your mind, see if you're able to answer these questions and these complaints and assertions as I read them. The Bible has been corrupted. There is no way of knowing what the original said. Do you know how many times the Bible has been translated? There are so many different translations. How can you know which one is the right one? If you translate a sentence from English into German, then into French, then into Spanish, then back into English, it's a completely different sentence. And that's what's wrong with the Bible. They have translated it so many times, we can't know what it originally said. The Bible is no different than any other holy book or religious book like the Quran or the Book of Mormon. We don't have the original manuscripts, so we have no way of knowing what the original said and what the apostles wrote. The Bible was wrote by men and put together by men. So are we prepared to give an intelligent defense to such claims? Are we ready for that? I believe that, as Paul was talking about, uh, in evangelism, it's not our duty to convince people or talk them into it. It's to confront them with the truth. And a lot of these people have spent their whole lives putting up these walls and defenses towards and against Christianity. So we, being in the image of God, having the ability to communicate and have logical thought, we need to help tear down those walls to get the gospel in. That's part of it. Regeneration is by the Spirit alone. I would never say otherwise. But he gives the means in which regeneration is done by sharing of the gospel and tearing down the walls that people have set up. And just as an introduction to that, we're going to start talking about the preservation, how the books of the Bible were brought together, as we know as the canon, the 66 books. The doctrine of the inspiration of the Bible teaches that Scripture is God-breathed, that is, God personally superintended the writing process, guiding the human authors so that his complete message was recorded for us. The Bible is truly God's word. I often think if I was sitting at home in private study and God audibly spoke to me, would I take that seriously? Would I uh, get a little nervous, heart start beating a little bit? Would I be very afraid? And testament in scripture is Jesus himself held people accountable of reading scripture as God talking to them. So it has the same authority. I think we should be mindful of that. During the writing process, the personality and writing style of each author was allowed expression. However, God so directed the writers that the 66 books they produced were free of error and were exactly what God wanted us to have. Reference 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.21. Of course, we speak of inspiration. We are referring only to the process by which the original documents were composed. After that, the doctrine of preservation of the Bible takes over. If God went to great such lengths to give us his word, surely he would also take steps in preserving it and keeping it unchanged. And what we see in history, God does exactly that. The term canon is used to describe the books that are divinely inspired, therefore belong in the Bible. Compared to the New Testament, there, are, there was much less controversy over the canon of the Old Testament. Hebrew believers recognized God's messengers and accepted their writing. 
as inspired by God. While there was undeniably some debate in regards to the canonicity of the Old Testament, by about A.D. 250, there was nearly universal agreement on the canon of Hebrew scripture. Apart from the Apocrypha, though the vast majority of Hebrew scholars considered the Apocrypha to be good historical and religious documents. So at certain periods of time, they were still reading it and holding the scripture, but it was soon re rejected by a lot of people. It was never considered to be on the same level of Hebrew scripture by many. For the process of the recognition of the collection, for the New Testament, the process of recognition of collection began in the first centuries of the church. Early on, some of the New Testament books were being recognized. Some of the books receiving the most controversy were James, 2 Peter, and 2 John, and 3 John. So it wasn't just a complete collection all at once. There was some question. I think Revelation had some questioning to it as well. So when was the first collection or canon put together? It was in AD 170. I'll write this up here. 170 AD. It was the Muratorian canon. It included all of the books except for Hebrew, James, and 3 John. I'll put that. Muratorian. So that was the first time that a complete New Testament canon had been together without those three books. By the year 363, the Council of Laodicea stated that only the Old Testament along with the Apocrypha and 27 books of the New Testament were be read in church. So at 363, we have the Council of Leo, spell it right, Decia. That council put together, and that was the first time that all 27 books of the New Testament were uh, considered to be part of the canon. And after that, you have the Council of Hippo in 393. I think there's only one P in it. Two P's. Mm. Easy fix. And in AD 397, Carthage. I believe that's right. Nope. It's an A. Carthage. So Hippo and Carthage, 393, 397, they also confirm the 27 books as authoritative. So that's what we're going to be focusing on is the 27 books. What, how did the councils do this? Was it just a bunch of old men sitting around pointing at the books they liked the best? Or how did they get to the conclusion that it was to be part of Scripture? They followed something similar to the following principles determine whether or not the New Testament Testament books were truly Holy Spirit inspired. The first one was, this was one of the principles, was the author an apostle or in close connection to an apostle? Apostle or close connection. So was the author, an apostle, will have close connections with an apostle. An apostle. Number two, is the book being accepted by the body of Christ as large? 
Is it being accepted by the body of Christ at large? The third principle, did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching? The doctrine consistent. How do you spell that? Number four, did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Holy Spirit? Did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect the work of the Holy Spirit? Reflect work of the Holy Spirit. Now, no early church council decided on the canon. It is very crucial that we remember that the church did not determine the canon. It was God and God alone who determined what was going to be in Scripture and what belonged in the Bible. It was simply a matter of God imparting to his followers that he had already decided what was going to be in there. He was just, by the Spirit, leading people to get it. Now, the human process of collecting the books of the Bible was flawed, but God in his sovereignty and despite our ignorance and stubbornness brought the early church to the recognitions of the books that he had inspired. And that will, none of this is meant to be exhaustive, but it's just to uh, get us going and hopefully provoke further study into it. And that's just basically uh, in a nutshell how that came to be the canon that we have it today. So we're going to go into methods of translation to understand the process of it. So, as so I erase this, the Bible was wrote in three different languages. Does anybody know those three different languages? Go to green. Greek, that's one. Greek, Hebrew, those are the main two, Aramaic with two A's was the third one but it was not very common. Most of the studies were down to Greek and Hebrew. What was, which one of these was the Old Testament? Hebrew. Hebrew. O-T, leaves New Testament, Greek. Now, it was written, Paul spoke of this a few weeks back, wrote on three different continents. Does anybody know what those three continents are? Europe. Europe. Africa. Asia and Africa, yeah. Very good, very good, very good. Europe, Asia, Africa. Okay. How many authors were there? Anybody know? One. Amen. No one knows. Well, 
What's the general consensus? Round 40. Round 40-ish. And the period of time being what? 1,500 years. Fifteen hundred years. So what you have is forty different authors over a span of fifteen hundred years in different places writing holy inspired scripture which contains no inconsistencies. We affirm that there is no contradictions in them. It is a collection of historical documents. And that alone, in my mind, is miraculous and I'm convinced. So that's what that is. Now around here, we're going to be in the location. I'm going to speak of King James onlyism, just shortly, not a lot, just a, it's like literally a couple sentences. But we are going to run to them. If we ever engage people publicly, even at, outside of our doorstep, we're going to run into people with King James onlyism in mind. That's what they believe. That's what they were raised on. They have a very similar mindset when it comes to uh, refuting the validity of scripture. Where the atheist and other similar beliefs would refute all scripture, a King James onlyist is going to refute all other scripture translations but their own. So uh, a, lot, a lot of the things that we talk about and go into can work in both scenarios. Like I said, uh, there's a lot of Christians that also refute the validity of scripture as well. Now, disagreements concerning biblical translations arise from almost two main areas of study. The first one, erase this, the first one is textual disputes. Two areas of study, textual disputes. What a textual dispute is, argument of what was originally written, wrote, what is it? Written by the author. So the first one going to be textual disputes. Now an example of a textual dispute can be found in John 6.47. Does anybody have a King James version of the Bible or a new King James? Hey, and if somebody with an ESV would also turn to the same passage, I'm going to give an example of this textual dispute. John 6.47. Hmm? It doesn't actually. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Good. That's okay. I need all the help I can get. If the King, New King James Version guy would actually read that for us, please. John 6, 47, just yes, one verse. just that one verse. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Oh, okay. ESV guy, will you read that, please? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Anybody catch the difference? In me. Or the KJV, before it was revised, says on me. Whereas 
One translation has this in it, the other ones don't. These Greek texts for modern translations do not contain on me. Textual disputes are based upon what Greek and Hebrew texts actually say. So the manuscript tradition we know is the Latin, not the Latin Vulgate, sorry. Um, the Texas Receptus, when they translated the King James Version, did not have that in it, so therefore it didn't go in it. Whereas we use later attestations of the Greek manuscripts, they do contain it. So that's why some do and some don't. It's not a conspiracy to remove stuff. And when you talk to a King James Onlyist, they'll say, look, they're trying to change the Bible. They're taking stuff out. But in actuality, they're not. It's just different manuscript traditions. Okay, the second one is, how do you spell it? Translational disputes. This dispute is how to translate what was originally written by the prophets. So the first one is what was in the, the message from the prophet, and this one is how to translate it. How to translate. Uh, another translational dispute Example in scripture can be found in John 3.36. We would like to see the KJV and the ESV as well. Austin, do you got an ESV with you, buddy? John 3.36. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, Tracy? He who believes in the Son hath everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Everybody catch that difference? Yours said does not believe and then does not believe. His says does not believe and does not obey. So one says believe, one says obey. That's the difference when you're talking about translational disputes, it's not an argument of if it's there, but how do we translate that into English? How do we convey that to another language? The distinctions between the two disputes are often lost, but it's very important that we distinguish between the two, because one cannot simply look at a word in Greek or Hebrew and assign one English term and then deem it the right translation uh, in every instance. Translation is, an, in fact, in a complex undertaking involving study of the vocabulary, the grammar, and the syntax of both the language one is translating and also the language that it's translating into. So you have to be, I guess, scholarly in both areas. It's a very hard task. And I'm no Greek major at all, but uh, hope to, hopefully someday I could have an opportunity. So oftentimes, the difference between two right translations is based upon on how literal a person wishes to be in the translation. So the two disputes, what's there, and how to translate it. We're going to focus mainly on how to translate it. And just to give a, get our minds around this a little bit better, there's a French term 
I'm just gonna carry this. This is mobile. I'll just take it with me. Jalet Cafard. Now, the most literal English translation of this is going to be, I have the cockroach. If you do word for word from French to English, it says, I have the cockroach. This is called the formal equivalency. That type of translation is formal equivalency. The more literal a translation, does not convey the real meaning of the original saying. So you have the original, but it doesn't really convey the meaning of what they're trying to say. Jaleco fart is an idiomatic expression, one that has special meaning not evident by the words themselves. Specifically, this term means I am depressed or I have the blues. That's called the dynamic equivalency, conveying actually intent of the author, not word for word. So you have the formal equivalency, most literal, and then the dynamic equivalency, which is uh, the more proper meaning of the phrase. Other examples of idiomatic expressions are, uh, it's raining cats and dogs, or hold your tongue, uh, the bucket list. I heard something on TV the other day, or I think it was yesterday or something where, well, you shouldn't be watching that stuff on the, but no. Uh, it wasn't today because I was out in the building. But I said, it's called a bucket list, but it, nothing on here has anything to do with a bucket. So that's the idea of, it's, a, it's words that convey a meaning that you can't really get just by the words. So that's the kind of problems you run into when translating from one language to another. You have these expressions that if you do literally translate them in a more formal equivalency, you're not really going to convey the proper meaning an intent of the author. So, another example, I can't speak German very well. Maybe, Austin, you can help us, can't you? German? Yeah. I oh, okay. <laughs> Morgenstern hat Goldemund, which literally translated means morning hours have gold in the mouth. If you do the formal equivalency, uh, we would know it as the early bird catches the worm. That's the more dynamic equivalency. So formal equivalency. It is the method of translation that gives a literal translation as possible, seeking a word-for-word -word translation from one language into another. No biblical translation is completely formal. It, take, it just simply wouldn't make any sense. There's no way to do it. Dynamic or functional equivalency seeks to translate the meaning from one language to another, even if it means sacrificing a word-for-word -word translation. So the two definitions again, formal equivalency is the method of translation that gives as literal a translation as possible, and dynamic or functional equivalency seeks to translate the meaning from one language to another, even if it means sacrificing a word-for-word -word translation. Some people will talk about, well, I want the true word of God, I want the most literal translation of it, but that's just uh, misguided, not understanding where it comes from. But likewise, even with a dynamic translation, the less formal, the less uh, word for word, it contains some formal elements. Therefore, what we find 
in modern translations is a spectrum extending from the most formal translation to the most dynamic translation. Uh, a biblical example, I like these. Luke 9:44. we don't have to read it, I'll just talk. ESV and KJV says, let these sayings sink down into your ears. Luke 9:44, ESV, KJV, let these sayings sink down into your ears. This is the more formal equivalency. Where the NIV does the more dynamic equivalency, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Do you see the differences there? The NASB is actually uh, more formal by translating words compared to the KJV's sayings. So there's always this back and forth of conveying the meaning and being literal when uh, these guys are sitting down and translating from one language to another. Another biblical example is in Amos 4. Uh, the KJV and the NIV actually joined together and given the more dynamic rendering. New King James Version and NASB give a more literal reading. KJV and NIV translate every three years, where the New King James Version and the NASB translate every three days. Now the KJV and the NIV understanding days as referring to periods of time, that is years. While we can give a defense under, um, understanding days as years, the, the most literal translation is days. So if you want a literal translation, that's what you'll have, but it doesn't properly convey the intent of the author. So leaving that aside, we kind of get an idea. Hopefully I'm not going too fast. I tend to talk fast for some reason when I get excited about stuff. But is I hope it's sinking in and kind of getting an idea of the process. It's not just, you can't just see a word in Greek or Hebrew and pick out the right word in English. There's a process and it's grueling and it's probably led to many of headaches. So we're going to talk about textual criticism. Now that we understand a little bit about the translational process, how we got the canon, what are the biggest arguments out there on a scholarly level that we might run into elsewhere? There's two kinds of textual criticism. Textual criticism is a branch of textual scholarship, philology, and literal criticism that is concerned with the identification of transcription errors in text. Both manuscripts and printed books. Ancient scribes made alterations when copying manuscripts by hand, given a manuscript copy, several or many copies, but not the original document. The textual critic might seek to reconstruct the original text. So what they're doing is they're getting multiple manuscripts, going through each one to compose and come up with, or not come up with, but to gather uh, the correct one. So if you have 100 manuscripts and you study all of them and 80 of them have a phrase in it but 20 of them don't, you might make a footnote or make a, uh, some kind of note on the side. So that's what they go through. When you think of the translation, you think sometimes, okay, you have one right here and you just copy it into this in another language, but it's usually a big group of manuscripts, like New Testament alone in Greek, we have 5,300 different manuscripts. And there's people spend their days and their lives that just go through all 5,300 of them, probably not one person, but, and uh, try to make sure 
that we have an accurate rendering of what we have today. Okay, so ancient scribes back then, when, in the old days, made alterations when copying manuscripts by hand. They would uh, make footnotes, or if they thought something was supposed to be there, like a, a term that they're familiar with, they might uh, read it into the text. They'll read the first line and say, oh, I'm familiar with this, and keep writing, and they'll actually add something into it by mistake, by accent. Given a manuscript copy, right there. The same process can be used to attempt a reconstruct intermediate versions or recessions of a document's transcription history. The ultimate objective of the textual critic's work is the production of a critical edition containing a text most closely approximating to the original. So the critical edition is going to be the text that is most closely resembling to the original autograph. There are three fundamental approaches to textual criticism. Eclecticism, stematics, and copy text editing. And if you get a chance to look those up, it might help you out a little bit in understanding what they actually do when doing this process. So you have uh, eclect. Decism, stematics, copy, text, editing. Stematics is just the study of various, ver I'll just give a, a brief definition of a couple of these. Stematics is the study of variant versions. So different versions, that's the study of different versions of the manuscript. Copy text editing is the process of reviewing and correcting written material to improve the accuracy of it. Techniques, oh, techniques from the biological discipline of cladistics are currently also being used to determine the relationship between manuscripts. You'll have to look that up because I don't know what that means. I'll just put that in there for some reason. <laughs> the phrase lower criticism is used to describe the contrast between textual criticism and higher criticism, which is the endeavor to establish the authorship, the date, and place of composition of the original text. Lower textual criticism. This involves the study of biblical manuscripts written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It's called lower textual criticism. And also uh, ancient translations into other languages like Latin, Sahidic, or Coptic. The goal of lower textual criticism is to reduce the original biblical text from this vast wealth of information. We've got 5,300 manuscripts, so we have men that have to reduce that to uh, um, an accurate rendering. <coughs> when practiced consistently, it should not involve subjective theories regarding authorship. So anybody with presuppositions coming into it, they're going to translate it towards their presupposition of what they think of the text and how it should be. It deals with the text only and the facts. 
Okay. Higher textual criticism or historical textual criticism is the second. Main focus is on the authorship, the date, and the geographical location of the text and the author. Some may not even be familiar with the term lower textual criticism or textual, lower textual criticism. It's just a, a loosely used term to identify textual criticism and distinguish from the higher. Historical criticism began in the 17th century and gained popular recognition in the 19th and 20th century. The perspective of the early historical critic was rooted in the, the Protestant Reformation ideology, not going off tradition, but rendering what the author intended us to have. And as much as their approach to biblical studies was free from the influence of traditional interpretation, so everything that they were used to, they basically just started fresh, sat down with Greek, sat down with the Hebrew, and tried to produce a more accurate version for us today. The textual differences between translations derive from the Hebrew and Greek text from which they were translated. We need to look at how the Bible was written and how we attained the text we will be discussing. And so that's going to be the more main focus of next week is going through the transmission process. Now that we kind of got an understanding of what they do, how they do it, uh, maybe we'll appreciate the things that were done in the history of the Bible. So uh, right now, any kind of questions?